Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. This interview with Jessica Hagedorn was first posted on April 9th, 2018. My guest is Jessica Hagedorn. Jessica Hagedorn's latest play is The Gangster of Love. The Gangster of Love is based on her novel, also called The Gangster of Love. She's also the author of three other novels, Dog Eaters, Toxicology, and Dream Jungle. There's a book of prose and poetry called Danger and Beauty. There's Burning Heart, A Portrait of the Philippines. The first play was Mango Tango, 1978, produced by Joseph Papp. Uh, let's start a little by talking about The Gangster of Love, and then we'll talk a little more about your career. After the success of Dog Eaters at The Magic, I guess you decided, well, I'll try again with another novel. Is that what happened? Well, you know, Dog Eaters was adapted for the stage many years ago. It had its genesis at La Jolla Playhouse and then went to the public theater. And then Loretta couldn't believe that it had never been produced in San Francisco, which has such a huge Filipino community and Filipino-American community. So she had worked with me on a very early workshop of dog eaters. So we had that relationship already. When she came to me with the idea, let's do it now. I really feel like the time is now. Back in 2016, I was really, really thrilled because I'd always felt there was this big hole in the fact that dog eaters had been done in LA and even in Canada, you know, I mean, really, <laughs> you know, so it was a wonderful experience and meeting all the actors here and working with them. So I've always thought that the gangster of love really would have resonance in the Bay Area because so much of it is set here. The Bay Area of the 70s is very different than what it is now, so that it would have this sort of very interesting historical significance. It was so culturally rich and exciting. I think all of us were here doing great work and innovative work, and people were supportive, you know, and we had audiences that went along with watching artists figure things out, you know, in many different mediums. So I talked to Loretta about it. I said, you know, would you be interested in this work? It's going to be a haul to do. And we've spent two years on it because a lot of decisions had to be made. So the novel, as you know, Richard, travels from San Francisco to New York and then ends up in the Philippines with a little sidestep to LA. So it has many settings, but we really made the decision that the bulk of it would be about San Francisco and immigrating here. What was that about in 1970? And of course, the role of music in my life when I had a band, which the protagonist, Rocky Rivera, also has this band in her mind that she would like to do as a poet. You know, she'd like to organize a poet's band. That that would be about also, what does it mean to be creative in this city, in San Francisco at that time? You know, 
it was very exciting to both of us. So we got this amazing fellowship from the Gerbode Hewlett Foundation. And that set me on the track to adapting. I like adapting. It's very challenging. Of course. I mean, in adapting your own work can be difficult because there are things that you love that aren't necessarily going to work in an adaptation. Correct. But the challenge is always exciting to me. It might be the editor part of my brain, you know. I also love the opportunity of going back to a work that already has a life, like a novel, and looking at it from a different time in your life as the writer of that work and also what you can do to make it work as another medium. Well, I know that when, sometimes when I go back and re-edit old interviews, a part of me doesn't see me doing the interview, but is listening as if a stranger is. Reading the novel and adapting it, given the fact that it's several years old, can you do that and just separate yourself out that way? I like to think I can. I had to do that with dog eaters, and that was big work. I mean, in terms of themes and post-colonialism and all that business. Sure, I mean, you try to do that. You try to have this detached kind of manner when you're tackling your own work, especially after so much time has passed. But in fact, I think I'm a little too ruthless. And it takes someone like Loretta and dramaturg Shirley Fishman, we work as a team on this, to sort of say, why did you throw the baby out with the bathroom? Because, you know, I'm sort of sitting there going, I don't need this. I don't need this, you know, and I overcompensate. So I go the other extreme, you know, and they're like, put it back. Jessica Hagedorn, The Gangster of Love. How does the book open versus how does the play open? Oh, that's very interesting. Well, the book opens, it's told, of course, Rocky's narrating it, and she's talking about the moment when they land in San Francisco is the same year that Jimi Hendrix dies. So all of these things, you know, come together. We have a similar opening scene with the brother and sister Voltaire and Rocky on the deck of the ship looking out. You know, it's approaching San Francisco. It's very early in the morning, very foggy and cold. There's a mention of Hendrix having died and this new land. It's very spare, you know, very different than the novel, right? Because you're inside her head. And then the mother, Milagros Rivera, appears on the deck. It's like, children, we're about to land, get ready, you know. It is... The way the novel opens. It's just we're not privy to all her thoughts. Well, I understand that there's live music, poetry readings, music videos, which means you're making it a multimedia landscape for the play, which adds another dimension. Yes, because Loretta and I were very interested in exploring what does it mean to be a young female poet trying to put a band together male musicians who are professional working musicians and try to lead the band. So we try to show a little bit of that, the rehearsal. I love the rehearsal process in music because a lot of it can be about standing around (laughs) chit-chatting or setting up the microphones. And to give a sort of flavor of that, seems like nothing's going on, but everything's going on, that process of rehearsing. And then to watch the artists grow and perform for the first time in front of an audience. There's a lot of 
scenes where she's writing in her journal and we hear her putting the poem together and sort of this word here and that word. You know how it is when you're writing, right? Uh, it's hard to describe, but we try to have it, you know, active. And then the music video is one powerful element. It happened in the 80s, the early 80s, the beginning of that sort of way of communicating. How did you deal with the other characters, the boyfriend, Elvis Chang? Well, he's in it, but I'm not going to tell you. You're going <laughs> to be surprised. Well, certainly, you know, they're not driving cross country, you know, can't do that. So we pretty much have what's in the novel, which is, you know, they meet, they, they cobble together this band and there's a drummer in the um, novel. He's called Sly, but in this reincarnation, I give him another name, Bugsy, because I didn't want all these, you know, we already have Marlon Rivera, who's named after Marlon Brando. We have Elvis Chang, you know, and then here we go with Sly. You know, it's a little much. So I gave him a, another name, Bugsy. But he's very much a strong character in this. So, uh, yes, and her brilliant friend, Keiko Van Heller, who's a big influence on her artistic life, is also in the play. When you're translating something that's first person and making it different, obviously... A lot of insights are lost. How do you maintain insights, particularly when dealing with the story of an immigrant viewing a new country? Well, that's the great work. Showing it through body language or perhaps even just one reaction or, you know, the actor's physical presence and how they receive information or how they observe something that perhaps people who've been here are forever take for granted, you know, going to City Lights bookstore for the first time and seeing this incredible atmosphere. City Lights is a setting in the play. You know, I had to pay my homage, you know, so that experience the first time in this bookstore where I remember as a kid going in there and being blown away by the fact that they didn't mind if you sat there with a book and read the whole thing and didn't buy it. That was so amazing to me. Rather than having her say that, because that's like lazy, you show it, you know, it's kind of like, oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, I think audiences are smart and I never, you know, underestimate an audience. I think they pick up. Does that mean on some level you will find insights in the book that you did not necessarily make at the time, but that become clear when you're translating it outward. Absolutely. You put it beautifully. Yes. Yes. That's why it's great being given this gift of returning to a work that, you know, people think, oh, it's a book, it's finished. It, that's the way it is. But I believe a work of art is never stagnant. And even with dog eaters in every not in every, because sometimes I could not be involved in a production. So they would just pretty much do what the script had them doing. But for example, when it was produced in the Philippines, there was a production in Manila. They brought me out and I knew I had to treat that script differently because first of all, it's written in English and I'm sitting there amongst the very actors who lived through those times. Some of them had been jailed. And they knew this material. 
And I, I gave them free reign to do some improvs, to speak in Tagalog when they wanted to, because they had an audience that would understand all that. So we kind of played with the script. And I had a ball doing that. Same with Loretta. She's not trying to do the same production that was done in New York. She has her own vision. So I was able to add some things and improve on certain scenes that I had no more time to do in New York. For that production in the Philippines, was the entire thing translated or was it still in English? It was mainly in English. I mean, certainly the audience is Manila. They speak English. They see plays in English. But I felt, because it was a story about the Philippines and that the politics in Manila at the time, you know, the setting of the script, my goodness, why is everybody speaking in English? It just didn't make sense. So my feeling was give them free reign to say some of my lines in Tagalog if they want to because it would be so powerful. And it was. It was. It was a joy to listen to. Jessica Hagedorn, we're living through a very different time. Obviously, the Philippines is as well, but in America we are. The entire story of immigration has shifted. Does that change how you view the show, and did it have any influence on the rewriting for the play? I think it just sharpened it. It's going to have the same ironies, maybe more now in the situation we're in. But, you know, I think you just do the story you want to do as honestly and as, as, as close to your heart, and it's going to resonate in 2018 or in, you know, 1970 in a different way. If you're doing it right, it's going to speak to what's going on now. I don't want to change anything just to address. I mean, I think that that's deadly and doesn't always work. You can't keep up with everything. That's absurd. You know, you have to be true to 1970s. What was that about? So the resonance comes from the audience seeing what's there rather than in the script itself. I believe so. You're also dealing with a coming-of-age story, which is something else again. So you're dealing with cultural identity, you're dealing with coming-of-age, and you're dealing with an immigrant looking out. As you look back on it and as you work on it, do you also get some kind of image about your own changes that have occurred over the years? I mean, is that in your mind as well? Oh, yes, always. You're writing and adapting years later with almost wearing three hats at the same time. You know, yes, yes. I'm a more experienced writer. I've lived longer. I've seen things and it'll hit me in a different way. And at the same time, I know that some of the things I always trusted in the book still work. So don't mess with it. Maybe it's not about changing it. It's about adding, expanding, thinking about... In this particular scene, now that I have an opportunity to write it for the stage and there are living, breathing actors there, you know, conveying your story, what is it I can do that would be fun and really give the audience a jolt in the way that you can't do on the printed page? You know, it's a private act reading. So maybe it's that the kid in the background suddenly gets a line. He didn't have a line in the book. I'd like to talk a little about your career. So you came over as a kid. How old were you? 14. 
I was a kid. You knew English at the time? Oh, yes. Yeah, the schools are, especially back then, were taught in English and then also Tagalog classes. So we were pretty adept. So you come over and you're suddenly in San Francisco. Had you been thinking about writing? Had you been thinking about anything other than being a musician? Or was that even in your mind? No, being a musician was never in my mind then. It was always writing. I'm a writer first. And I always knew I wanted to be a writer, a poet, a storyteller since I was a child. I read a lot. It was encouraged. No one told me I couldn't. It was a way for me to sort of have my private time. And I read all the time and wrote little things, you know, in little notebooks. So I came with the, with that in my head, like one day I'm going to, you know, write a book, you know, you know how kids do, but I always knew that I was very clear about it. And then as I'm living here, I'm going out, going to the film world, looking at bands, you know, and like, oh, this is really exciting. I love this music. I always loved music, by the way. So, and music, sometimes I write to music, especially when I was young. So music was always part of my world. And so I start seeing people doing performance. Oh, very interesting, you know, dance with poetry and, you know, that kind of thing. I get ideas. I mean, that's how it happens, I think. There was plenty of inspiration. So when you were a tweener, 15, 16, 17, you were going to the hate, and that was at the time. You lived in the hate. You lived in the hate. So you were right in the center of what was happening well before the Summer of Love destroyed it. Yes, because the Summer of Love was, what, 67? 67. Yeah, that's when I graduated from high school. So, yeah, my earlier years was just by accident, by the way, that that's where we ended up living. So I was exposed to everything. So you were going to the family dog in the Avalon place like that? Yes. I had these classmates, you know, in high school and we'd plan it, you know, like, oh, let's go hear this band or that band. We were allowed to go and just be sure we got home at a decent time. That's before you created your own band. Oh, way before. I mean, I was a teenager in high school. Yeah. Were you writing at the time? Always. What prompted you to start writing Dog Eaters? Well, that's not till much later. I always wanted to write a novel one day, and I even I knew I was not ready to do that yet. But I read uh, in my 20s, A Hundred Years of Solitude was first translated into English. So I had a copy. A friend gave me a copy of the book, and it blew me away because I felt like It gave me the key. It unlocked the door in my mind, how I might be able, it freed me to imagine the Philippines in the way I wanted to write about it. Well, that's magic realism. Yeah. Were you reading any science fiction too? You know, I've read a few and appreciated some. No, I was always reading, you know, a lot of Latin American writers and poets and a lot of writers like Ishmael Reed, you know, when he came out with Mumbo Jumbo and stuff. So that was like messing with my, ooh, all this, you know, interesting like uh, time travel. I mean, in a way, Mumbo Jumbo has science fiction elements. Well, a lot of the magic realism does too. Does too, yeah. Plays, did you go to theater too? Yes, when I could. And I read a lot of plays. If I couldn't afford to go to the theater, I read the play. I was intrigued by them, and I attended ACT's conservatory for two years. That's how interested I was in all of 
theater, acting, how does a play get put on, you know, because we had to apprentice in the shows at night. How did Mango Tango come about? Well, by then, Entezaki and I were collaborators on a lot of poetry and multimedia things we were doing in the Bay Area. So I went to New York for the first time and saw a lot of theater and then saw pieces that really sort of ignited this idea of, oh, you know, I could sort of do a story piece with musicians and maybe one other actor, and that's it. Very simple and stark. But we had done a piece at the public that sort of was quite successful with another writer, Tulani Davis, and it was called Where the Mississippi Meets the Amazon. That was produced by Joe at the public in 1978 or 77, 78. It ran for a few months, which was exciting. And we had a full band on stage, The three of us performed. There was an arc. There was a director. You know, but the band was incredible. It was, at first, the band leader was David Murray, and he brought all these great musicians. And then when David had to, after a month, he had to go tour. He had to work. So someone else was brought in to lead the band. And we always worked with very high caliber people. And so that inspired me. And then Joe asked me, did I want to do a workshop production of my work, and he gave me the venue. Well, working with Joseph Papp, I mean, he changed theater in many ways. Yes, he did. How did you meet him? Through Entezaki, you know. Uh, she had already been working on Colored Girls, so he was certainly the man. He and Woody King made it happen in New York. So when I went to visit, I just went to a lot of plays at the public. I was always there seeing everything. For Colored Girls began at the public? In New York. It began here, you know. Because she would just sort of recruit us, like, Jessica, you want to be the guest artist? And then I'm inviting so-and-so and so-and-so, maybe a band or a one-horn player. There was this great bar, Minnie's Can Do, in The Hate, but it was way towards the end of The Hate, sort of where Amoeba Records is now, around that area. And she took a liking to Entezaki's work, and she offered, yeah, if you want to experiment, my place is always yours. People were very generous like that. So Entezaki had this vision, and it sort of kept growing, but it was loose. And we would do things in Oakland, like La Pena, and you'd sort of see the seeds of For Colored Girls starting to really get planted, and where she was doing her own dramaturgy in a way, you know. And then she decided around 75 that she was ready to, this show had a following and people would come and watch her, you know, with all her guest artists. You know, sometimes I did it, sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I just came to watch. That's how free-flowing it was. Like she started with certain poems and she ended with certain poems. So already something was happening. And she always called it, for Colored Girls. So there was a title. And then she decided to go back to New York and try it out there. That She was ready to move back east. She had done her Bay Area thing. So 75, she got in her car and drove back. And they started doing it at a bar in the Lower East Side. And Woody King saw it. He invited her to Henry Street. She got some actors, actresses. I call them actors now. And started working with them and brought in a director so she could be in it and not have to do everything. And it 
started word of mouth. And then Woody invited Joe Papp. And that's how that came together. And Joe Papp said, let's bring it to the public. And then from the public, it became such a huge hit. So by 1976, it was already on its way to Broadway. And you already had your in. I did. It was wonderful. You know, I mean, I was I was somewhere in Europe at the time. And I remember picking up a magazine and seeing her face. I was just like, my God, what's going on back home? <laughs> <laughs> Jessica Hagedorn, how did you get involved in KPFA? All my friends were working at KPFA in some form or another. They were either the engineer or they were, you know, they had a little show. And there seemed to be room for if you had an idea to do something. So just a lot of, you know, Larry was part of our community. Larry Bensky, he was supportive. I had a friend named Nashira. Priester now. She married Julian Priester, the musician. And Nashira was working in radio. So she knew Larry. You see what I mean? It was all this sort of radio meant something. And then we ended up also doing stuff at KPOO. And I had a show there. Did you continue any radio work after you moved to New York? No. So how did you get involved doing, uh, you did a movie? Oh, yes, I did. Yes. There's a very wonderful, brilliant, actually, video artist named Shuli Chang, and she wanted to make a feature. I'd been doing short videos with her. She liked my writing, and I mean, she liked different people's writing. So she would make video pieces using our work, the text, or maybe our voices, you know. She's really great video artist, very imaginative. And she decided she wanted to try to get funding to do an independent feature and would I like to write the script? So I those things excite me. So even though I don't know what I'm doing, I'm like, yes, if you're giving me that opportunity, I'll say yes. That was Fresh Kill. I also found something called Pink Palace. Oh, yes, that was fun. It was an animated series. When the Oxygen Network first started, it was supposed to be this very, would you believe, radical thing run by women, and they were commissioning a lot of interesting pieces to do. So one of them was this little piece, um, which featured kids of color running around, you know, having adventures. Getting back to the gangster of love, as we were talking, and as you were telling your story, the gangster of love and dog eaters are multimedia events. And I kept thinking at the time when I saw dog eaters, I was thinking, okay, it's part of the current scene to expand multimedia-wise, but it sounds as if, Jessica Hagedorn, that on some level you've been working in that framework for decades. Yeah, I would think so. That's an interesting uh, pointing it out to me that it's actually nothing I've adopted recently. It's It's always been a discipline that works for me because that's the way my forms of expression seem to really pop. It's not just music. It's about a little bit of visuals or a lot. I also get very excited working with different artists. You know, they bring so much to my work and I bring something to theirs and I learn. You know, I always want to grow. So well, I love movies. So that's from a child. So the idea of working with filmmakers, it's not some new thing. I mean, my goodness, I jumped at the chance. And certainly, Shuli, her work in particular, we did some pieces that were shown at the Whitney, for example, in, you know, in the early, when was it? 90s, when she was doing so much short 
experimental stuff. And so it made sense. I mean, we kind of had a language, you know, a way of working that was very instinct. Uh, speaking of that, are you branching out into doing more artwork like that for museums? Or is that something that's in your past? If the opportunity comes up again, I would certainly do it. Things are different now. So, you know, it's there's very little funding. People like Shalise, even she, who's a veteran, you know, has to, it's almost like you're starting from scratch. So those ways of working that seem to be so much easier, I think after, I would say in the 2000s, that's when things started becoming different. But I would do it in a, in a heartbeat because my love for all those mediums has not changed. And so I guess it would be the same with getting back involved with film or even television if the, if the chance arose. But since this is cutting edge, money is tight. Very tight. But there's a lot of exciting stuff, for example, going on in television right now that I never thought would happen, right? You're seeing mm -hmm. a lot of really interesting work. But, you know, I also know you can do what you can do. And I think young people are coming up who are adept at all that stuff. So... You know, I'll just see what, what's out here and continue writing and making work. Your last novel, Toxicology, is already seven years old. You're working on another novel? I'm sort of working on a memoir-ish book. <laughs> There's been a lot of theater work recently, so that's kept me very um, busy. But the next book, I think, is going to be about remembering a lot of this. Finally, you've got four novels there. Two have now been adapted. Are you beginning to look at the other two and seeing if maybe they could be adapted? No, not necessarily. I think toxicology would make an interesting theater piece, but I feel like Dream Jungle is much more a, a big film. You know, that has to be somebody coming to me saying, yes, I can produce it. I think that would make kind of a wonderfully insane movie. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm -hmm.